Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Stalingrad is no longer a town. By day, it is an enormous cloud of burning, blinding smoke. It is a vast furnace lit by the reflection of flames. And when night arrives, one of those scorching, howling, bleeding nights, the dogs plunge into the Volga and swim desperately for the other side. The nights of Stalingrad are a terror for them. Animals flee this hell. The hardest stones cannot bear it for long. Only men endure. Well, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. And we're on our third episode of the Battle of Stalingrad. James there with that quote, clearing up the pronunciation of Stalingrad once and for all. We've, we've <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, thought, I thought we were starting that on a, on a much more somber note because yesterday, as you, as you rightly pointed out a moment ago, we then went from kind of sort of moody, depressing quote to Hello! Hello, welcome, <laughs> campers. But no, finally, because uh, we, we have uh, swung like a pendulum between Stalingrad and Stalingrad, and I think you, what you've done there is you've settled the argument, Jim. Well, it's, it's, it's Comrade Stalin, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. You know, now, he's, uh, you know it's Stalin. Stalin. That's Stalin. I'll tell you what. <laughs> what, was <that laughs> quote, you know? what was that quote from? Well, I don't know. He's a nameless man. Um, right. He was a lieutenant of the 24th Panzer Division. Right. Part of the German Sixth Army stuck in the hell that is Stalingrad. I guess he's writing that probably, I don't know, October, early November, something like that, um, 19, 1942. I mean, but it all kicks off in September, you know, when it's still, yeah. still baking hot, 40 degrees. I mean, yeah. you run the gamut of, of, of temperature and weather in the Stalingrad battle, that's for sure. Yeah. Yes, because it's an, in, the internal continental climate, whatever it's called, isn't it, where... It's either hot or cold, basically. Um, the, the, now, what we've talked about in the last the last two episodes really is is essentially a series of unforced errors on the part of the German high command. Yep, because we we did a lot yesterday on the Caucasus, didn't we? And going yeah. down there and the splitting of of Army Group South and into Army yeah. Group A and Army Group B and yeah. You know, breaking that golden rule of German militarism, which is concentration of force, a schwerpunkt. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Yeah. And this is the thing about the Caucasus breakout is it's easy to break out when there's nobody there, isn't it? Essentially. And yes, it's the greatest, you know, the speediest advance of all time, blah, blah, blah. But they're not actually properly up against the Red Army. Whereas what happens here is uh, a whole different ball game. It's a whole different ball game. And those of you who, who listened to us talking about um, Vichy France the other day will realise that what's also about to happen as this goes on, because yesterday we discussed the fact that Hitler starts to worry about the possibility of a European invasion. So sends Das Reich and um, Liebstandert to to Europe, to France. Yes. Although, actually, on the grand scale of things, two divisions, you wonder really what difference that would make. You know, had he sent them to Stalingrad, they'd have probably been swallowed up in Stalingrad as well. Is the the truth of the matter. Yeah, exactly. But what is about to happen, however, although, I mean, we're, we're we're just in September now. Come November, the Allies are going to invade North Africa. And by November, the Allies will have defeated Rommel in 
in North Africa as well. So it, I think what I think what's interesting about this is, you know, we, we start the year with the Germans with great plans. And in June, act, uh, July, June and July, acting on those great plans to go further with less in, in Russia, in the Soviet Union, while actually everything is going to pop for them everywhere yeah. else, because Hitler can only really concentrate on one thing at a time. And isn't yeah. taking into account really what he isn't reading Western allied game for what it is, no. which is that he's, they're going to destroy you as far away as, you know, at, at the end of your tentacles. And what the what's interesting, <laughs> that's, really, that's exactly what they're doing here, isn't it? Exactly. Well, that's exactly my point. Yeah. Is that by offering the Soviets tentacles to destroy, what else would the Red Army do? But what's going to happen in Stalingrad? Yep. Stalingrad. Sorry, I thought we'd clear that up. Anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, the you know the, the, the that's the your start point for the for for this for this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so so I think what you know what we should finally do is exactly the same. Palamate on episode three, we haven't actually got to the Battle of Stalingrad. Right, well, this is the ba- let's do the Battle of Stalingrad. <laughs> so, no, let's now. do it. We're, We're going to do okay, it. Right. Okay. <laughs> so 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 uh, at this point, the Red Army of sixty second Army is 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 commanded by uh, General Anton Lopatin, and yeah. he is falling back to Stalingrad. Yeah. And he's on an absolute hiding to nothing because yeah. the fact that he's in Stalingrad and the, you know, being pushed back to Stalingrad shows that he's going backwards, which shows yeah. that he's not winning, yeah. which shows that Stalin's about to give him the chop. Yeah. Um, at the time, Zhukov, who is the deputy supreme commander by this point, yeah. you know, and he's the number one military Guy under Stalin, and he's he's here to represent the Red Army at the buffet, basically, isn't he? That's the basically, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's a very good way of putting it. And and on and he's up in the kind of Moscow area because they they the reason he's there is because they thought that that's the main threat. So anyway, so on the twenty seventh August, Stalin orders him to kind of to the Kremlin and says, "Get your ass up here," um, and, and briefs him about the situation and stuff, saying it's looking dangerous. Yeah, and you know, I've already issued this state of siege thing. Stalingrad, there's no step back, all this kind of stuff. Um, and we need to do something. We need to do something. We need to come up with a plan. And in the immediate thing, it's, it's, it's General Moskalenko's first guards army, which is ordered to attack south and link up with the second, uh, 62nd army and cut off the German penetration of the Volga. Yeah. Which has happened to the south of Stalingrad at this stage. Yeah. But the first guards army is delayed by fuel shortages and they don't start attacking until the 3rd of September. And, and to be brutally honest, they don't get a whole very far at all. They don't go do a good job of it. Yeah. And at this point, by this point, the 3rd of September, so well, and, you know, 10th of September, let's say, the 6th army is just three kilometers, what's that, you know, just under two miles north yeah. of Rhinoc, which is the northern suburb of Stalingrad. And you remember yeah. in yesterday's yeah. episode, we were talking about how Stalingrad is spread out over kind of about 20 miles yeah. on the west bank of well, and it's a sort the of River de- Volga. It's a sort of D-bend, the Volga, isn't it? Is that right? Yes, it's convex, but it, but but not dramatically. It's not It's not like a big, it's not like a big semicircle. It's not a meander, yeah. No, it's a very gentle convex yeah. curve. And Stalin, Stalin at this point is getting really worried. Yeah. And he says, you know, they can take Stalingrad today or tomorrow unless the Northern Group gives help urgently. So in other words, you know, they've, they've got to up their game. Yeah. So the 5th of September, Zukov orders a renewed attack and the, the Red Army hammers away at the Germans for a week. But they just they just cannot cut off that tentacle to the yeah. to the Volga. They just yeah. they just can't do it. So effectively, 62nd Army is surrounded in Stalingrad. Yeah. The difference, of course, 
for what happens later to Sixth Army when they are in turn encircled is that 62nd Army has got the lifeline of the Volga. Yeah. So it's it's a teeny bit like the garrison at Tobruk. They're surrounded, but they've yeah. got their backs to the sea. And while you can get, you know, it's fraught with danger getting stuff in and out of Tobruk Harbour. It's fraught with danger getting things across at night on the ferries and all the rest of it. But it can be done. Yeah, and and it being a city is is defensible or defendable, and that's really yes. how the battle then begins to take shape, isn't it? Is the, yep. the, there's a new there's a new texture to to come to this eastern fighting, which is that it's in the city. Leningrad is invested, is besieged, but the fighting isn't in the city as such. Right. This no, is exactly that. This exactly. Is this right street right by in. street. Yeah, yeah. And as we were saying yesterday, you know, at its widest, it's only kind of you know two and a half, two point six miles wide yeah. in 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 width, yeah. but twenty miles long. Yeah. So it's incredibly narrow. So you're yeah. talking about when the sixty second army falls back and and it's back in it's in the city yeah. by the tenth of September. Nothing outside at all. The whole army is is now back in the in in this labyrinthine web yeah. of 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 factories, the barricades, the Red October, the, the yeah. tractor factory, all linked by these underground tunnels. You know, this is suddenly the war of the rats. You know, this is yeah. this is where all this is kicking in, and they're in the city by the tenth of September. Yeah. And you're talking about the 62nd, which is which is there, and, and the 64th army is is to the south, basically. Uh, and inevitably, Stalin sacks Lopatin because that's as sure as kind of night follows day that, you know, if you have a defeat, that's what's going to happen. I mean, the thing is, if you're a sacked Soviet general, we've talked about, you know, sacked American or British generals, basically, you end up you end up training people, you end up you end up sort of being recycled or if you're lucky, like Richie, you get another go. Right. But basically, that's it. But you're not gulagged. If you're a sacked German general, you're probably rehired 18 months later because he sacked someone else. And there's a, you know, there's only there's only so many people in the pool, and anyway, the German generals are all quite bribable because that's that's really that's partly how Hitler's running things. What happens to you if you're a sacked Soviet general? Not a lot, actually. You don't get done in either. You, right. you don't oh, get that's sent interesting. off. Interesting. Not necessarily. There are, there are. I mean, because Timoshenko's kind of sort of promoted, sacked, downgraded. Yeah. You know, siphoned off. I mean, Lopatin, for example, he doesn't die till 1965. Right. Well, okay. No, but not busting rocks in uh, a salt mine. No, I don't think so. No, okay. I don't think so. That's interesting. I think those days of the purges. I mean, obviously, if it, if it had been 1937, absolutely, it's oh, yeah, yeah, gone. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. it's good night, Charlie. Yeah, I'm Mark Grave. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah the whole sh- whole works. Yeah, but uh, and probably a family as well. Yeah, but but I think by 1942, you never know when you might need him again. Yeah, 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 yeah. you know, yeah. might have ended up training. I don't know. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, just, yeah, just, yeah. It just, it, you know, because we have yeah. talked about sack people before. It just it struck me. Well, he's fired, but now what? But okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so this is the point where most of the population of five hundred forty-two thousand people in Stalingrad, three hundred thousand evacuated this time. Lots of them die in the process of getting yeah. across the Volga, the bank slippery of blood, and all the rest of it. Mm. But fifty thousand remain. Civilians remain. Most of those are youngish men. You know, they're yeah. fit and able men. Uh, factory workers, trained into workers' militias, all that kind of stuff. That's a bad Airbnb booking, isn't it, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. And the, and the, and the defence is split. Yeah. So you've got south of Zaritza River, which, if you remember, was the one that is running kind of sort of west yeah. to east, yeah. cuts in at 90 degrees to the Volga, yeah. sort of two-thirds of the way down the city, the Zaritza Gorge. South of that is southwestern front. Yeah. North of that is the Stalingrad front. Yeah. General Gordov is, is the commander of the Stalingrad front. 
Yeremenko is commander of the Southeastern Front. With his head headquarters in the in the Tsarita Gorge. In the gorge. And he's there with Khrushchev. Who's there to stiffen him politically. Yes. And he's already quite a, se- a senior player in the whole yeah. kind of, you know, NKVD thing, political machinations, yeah. whatever. Yeah. yeah. What is interesting is that Zhukov is actually quite sparing in his reinforcements. So he only actually sends directly five replacement divisions into the 62nd Army. Right. In Stalingrad. Which sounds like a lot. Well, I was going to say, you say quite sparing and then off you offer up five divisions. But um, Well, yeah. I, I know, but in the big scheme of things, when you're talking about those kind of huge yeah. numbers, yeah. you know, don't forget, get, Soviet divisions aren't as big uh, as, uh, yes, as British and American divisions. Yeah. They're, they're kind yeah. of half the size, more like a brigade. Yeah. But that indicates that Zhukov thinks we can do this without having to pump tons of men into it, doesn't it? Yes, but it's also the nature of the beast, isn't it? That It's a, it's a bit like... I don't know, there's only so many people you can fit on Saipan well, yeah. or Tarawa or Peleliu or Guadalcanal yeah. or whatever because of its yeah. size. And, you know, it's quite a small area. And yeah. actually pumping, pumping lots of men into into very cramped brick buildings, which are, you know, makes them more vulnerable. Pieces. Well, it makes them more vulnerable. More people who are, you know, <laughs> that's not really, the manpower isn't necessarily what you want. What you really want is huge amounts of guns and artillery yeah. Hammering away at the German positions yeah. from the other side of the Volga. And of course, that's what happens. And you want lots and lots of um, Red Air Force planes, um, ill to Sturmoviks coming over, the, yeah. the, these sort of flying tanks and kind of hitting, doing ground attack, which of course is exactly what they do do and with increasing effectiveness. But the battle proper for Stalingrad opens on the morning of 8 a.m. on the morning of 13th September when huge numbers of Stukas peel over. They fly somewhere like 2,000 sorties that day, and, and the city is just absolutely hammered. Uh, and this is the second major air assault on the city, and it's obviously incredibly bad news. Now, uh, Lopatin has been fired. Who's replaced him? Well, it's a name that goes on to achieve great things. It's Vasily Chukov, one of the most ruthless commanders of his generation, definitely. Huge explosions of temper, a bit like Zhukov in that one, but yeah. also very quick to laugh. You know, slap you on the back. He's he's a kind of sort of brash, breezy, hail fellow, well met, utterly ruthless bastard. He sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> he sounds like a nightmare. He's, and he's from a peasant family. Yeah. He's from a really, really humble peasant family. Goes off to work in a factory from the age of 12. But in 1917, joins the revolution, joins the Red Army, does pretty well, stays in the Red Army, survives the purges, all the rest of it. You know, so he's made a, he's by a, the, a man made by the Red Army and, and made by the revolution. But also, is it luck or judgment that avoids the purges for him? You know, the, the, uh, let's say he's lucky and you need lucky let's generals, lucky. right? You need, you need lucky, but he's rough and coarse. He's no messing about. He tells it as it is. He's got yeah. a very kind of clear analytical mind. You know, he's brave as an ox. He's absolutely, yeah. you know, utterly ruthless, but absolutely right man, right time. Yeah, no question about it. Interestingly, he's missed first part of the war because he's been in China as a military attaché to Chiang Kai-shek, which yeah. I think is really, really interesting. Uh, yeah. And he's only recalled to the Soviet Union in March 1942, and he then what... takes command of a reserve army near Tula, which is actually his hometown. I wonder what he brought back from being the attaché to Chiang Kai-shek, because <laughs> after all, he miss he misses the huge amount. Well, you wonder the politics. But, but, yeah, I suppose, but he's missed the, everything going wrong because you know again. Yes, yeah, so he's, he's untarnished. Well, that's your luck. But precisely, there's your luck. Because because if he'd been commanding, you know, some guards army that had been encircled and gobbled up through no fault of his own, because you know, because Stalin had been ignoring ignoring the warnings about Barbarossa or whatever, he'd be in the bag, or he'd have been fired and purged, and you know, whatever. 
You, you know what I mean? The, he, yeah, the, yeah, completely. It's a, completely. a stroke of luck, really. He's clean, isn't he? Yeah, and the other day when we were talking to Ian, we were talking about yeah. that um, that um, amazing artist that was there. What was he called? Hold on, I'm just checking. Finoganov. Yeah. And he does a pencil sketch of Vasily Chukov. Right. And it's just brilliant. I mean, he just looks... I mean, his character just is, is he, he looks serious, tough. You, you just yeah. wouldn't mess with him at all. Yeah. You absolutely wouldn't. And, you know, he's got a bandit laugh, you know, and downs his vodka with the best of them. But absolutely uncompromising. Yeah. And he goes to report to, to, to actually to um, Yeremenko and, and he sees, sees Khrushchev. And Khrushchev, yeah, that's right. He, he's summoned. No, he's summoned to. That's right. He's summoned to. There's a new joint headquarters. That's right. There's a joint headquarters for both the Stalingrad and Southeastern Fronts at a place called Yami. And so he's told to get there um, on the 11th of September, and it takes him almost a day and a night to get there. And during the night, he's driving around in his lend-lease jeep, right, which is already already reaching. Already so arrived. that's a, a yeah, key yeah. moment yeah, already. Yeah. American stuff yeah. is getting that far. It's it, you know yeah. it's come through Iran, through the Baltic, yeah. and everything. Amazing! It's there. It's there. So he's in his jeep, and he doesn't need to switch on the lights because the glow from the fires of Stalingrad are kind of lighting his way. It's absolutely amazing. So he turns up there, and Khrushchev is there at Yami, and says, "says Comrade Chukov, how do you interpret your task?" And Chukov says, "We will defend the city or die in the attempt." That's it. That's that. That's a simple deal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a Jeep in uh, this part of the Soviet Union within a year of the Americans going to war. Within within, within, within a year. This is September. Within nine months. Months. Within nine months of the US going to war. Because I know there's that perpetual sort of ding dong, isn't there, between people who say the Soviets, Soviets won the Second World War, actually, and then people who say, "Well, no, they did it with American trucks and jeeps and yeah. and stuff." And then the, the the rejoinder tends to be, "Yes, but that's later. That that kicks in later. This isn't later. This is five. You know, like America is <laughs> yeah, nine, but, but you nine did, months into the war. You know, there's no question the jeep is jolly useful. But by the same token, you still got to be a tough bastard to take on this, take on Commander Sixty Second Army in Stalingrad. Oh, I'm not denying that <laughs> of of which the Americans all those thousands of miles away I've absolutely no no, no contribution whatsoever no, no but, but uh, it is really interesting isn't it you know America yeah completely yeah I totally agree yeah it's yeah, yeah it's absolutely amazing nine months yeah. nothing nothing yeah yeah but anyway that night so, so 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 having had his meeting having told Khrushchev that he's absolutely prepared to die if that's what it comes to he heads off to take over his command. I mean, talk about poison chalice and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah. Or maybe not. Maybe it's the kind of making of the man. So he gets on a ferry boat from Kajnaya Sloboda, um, which is one of the kind of ferry points on the on the eastern side of the Volga. Yeah. Um, he's on a ferry accompanied by two T-34s, which are going into the town. And once he gets there, he finds his, finds his headquarters. Uh, and on the morning of the 13th of September, you know, we find Chukov at his headquarters in the dugout on the Mamey of Kurgan. Uh, and you might remember that's also Hill 102. That's the, yeah. the, the the grassy knoll yeah. um, just to the north of the central part of the city, just south of the, it's south of the, of the series of factories, but north of the main heart of the old yeah. Zaritsa town. Yeah. And at the time, the artillery of the 51st Corps are opening fire and this sort of yeah. huge range of shells are, are, are pounding down on, on the, on the uh, um, Mamayev Kurgan. And Chikov thinks, okay, 
you know, he's being brave and he's being stupid. So he moves his he moves his bunker immediately to the Tsar Richard Gorge. Yeah. Uh, um, and you have 51st – at this point, you've got 51st Corps on one side and 48th Panzer Corps on the other attacking them. So you've got 51st Corps, the, the German 51st Corps on the northern side of the Tsar Ritzer and the 48th Panzer Corps on the other. Just absolutely pounding Stalingrad. And, you know, it's really savage fighting. This is, this is when the Germans are fit, they're well, they're well fed, yeah. they're coming in. You know, this is absolute street fighting. And by the 14th of September, the Germans are close to the central station, number one station. They've occupied some of the railway workers' brick houses, those terrace houses that we were talking about yesterday. And that same day. Yeah, it changes hands day, 14 times. Unbelievable. I've often read that, and you sort of think. Really? Well, or, or 50. You, you, you know what I mean? Like, yes. <laughs> or, you know, 10, I, I, 14. I, I, think, I think the point is, is you know, what, what you're talking about is Germans think they've got it. Then they yeah. realise they haven't. Red yeah. Army think they've got it. Then they find some yeah. more Germans. And, yeah. and you know, it's like it's like little ants sort of beating around. It's interesting. I had to do this this thing the other day where I was do, I was doing Gurglebox on um, Call of Duty. All oh, right, Call right. of Duty Normandy and D Day right. and whatever, or what's it called? Victory in Europe. I can't remember what it was. Anyway, you have to, you have to land in a landing craft and all the rest of it. And I was saying the problem is it's just not like there's too many people sort of beetling about, and it just wouldn't be like that. But actually, I think this is exactly what it was like. Yeah, yeah. And by the seventeenth of September, it's changed hands um, thirteen times. <laughs> And you know, Red Army troops, the sixty second Army troops under Chukov, are just contesting every single building and quite often yeah. every floor as well. You know, yeah. you quite often find yourself your Germans are on the first floor, but the Russians are on the ground floor or in the cellars in the and, cellar, and, yeah, yeah. and on the second floor. You know, so it's just it's just absolute it's total, total carnage. But yeah. on the fifteenth of September, the Mammy of Kurgan is actually captured by the fifty first Corps which later becomes the 51st Mountain Corps in Italy, incidentally. Right. And on the 17th of December, Chukov moves his ed- headquarters again, this time to the banks of the Volga. And, and, and we talked so about those ravines. he's going backwards. He's going backwards. At this point. But also, going- don't forget, he's new to Stalingrad. So he doesn't yeah. really know the lay of the land. He's thinking, yeah. oh, it's a bit hot here. Yeah. Um, you know, going to the gorge, that sounds like a sensible idea. Uh-uh, yeah. Maybe not. And then yeah. he goes, you know, so then it's kind of back again. But but but, but he then remains in, the, in, in these ravines, you know. Because you remember those bluffs? What are they? They're yeah. about sort of 50 feet high, something like that. You know, they're decent size. Yeah. You know, and, and, you, and you know, this clay, so it's perfect because you've got some packed clay above you, which yeah. absorbs shells. Yeah. Uh, um, but it means it's very easy to dig into it very quickly yeah, and, and bolster yeah. it with wood and, you know, all yeah. the things you, you would need. So so he's he's reasonably safe there. But, of course, you know, the landscape is turning into, into you know, absolute rubble, carnage. Yeah. You know, this, this is Fire, a smashed post-apocalyptic fires, hell. Fires everywhere. Fires um, everywhere. Uh, huge, I mean, huge factory buildings being, as well being fought over every inch. And as you say, they're all, they're all linked with... Um, trenches or tunnels so you know this is why russians are popping up all over they know a they know the city b they've they've dug the defenses in it Hmm. and also the essentially the perpetual advantage of being a defender in an urban environment yeah you you haven't got to take the initiative the other side's got to literally every other side's got to come forward every house every street corner is a new parapet to stick your head above and every building is a, a potential bunker as well. So a defendable bunker, in essence. So every description I read of this, I always think, is, can this possibly do this justice? Because, mm. of the, because of the casualties, because of the sheer amount of ordnance spent on the place. You know, is there ever really a way of, 
imagining this is the, is the well the other thing of course is, is well I, I think it's very very hard to but I think you know we've all seen sort of videos of, of a building being demolished you know those sort of cooling towers suddenly a yeah. didcot are blown up or something you see them disappearing and the other thing you see is vast amounts of dust don't you Okay, so that's what you get. And so where you've got where there's lots of brick, where there's lots of cement, where it's very dry at this time of year, lots yeah. of dust yeah. and clay. And we all know what clay's like. You know, when, it, when, it's, when it's wet, it gets really, really muddy and thick and viscous. And when it's dry, it's incredibly dusty it's, because cause clay is so fine. It's, a, it's sediment, isn't it, effectively? So what you would get is just huge amounts of choking dust the whole time combined yeah. with smoke, the acrid smell of cordite, obviously. <laughs> Acrid stench of cordite, I think. You yeah, the acrid stench of cordite, <laughs> the burp of the uh, of the machine gun. Uh, um, you, you just have a, a totally cacophonous noise all the time. Yeah, is that the right phrase? Anyway, you yeah, know what I, I guess, mean. Yeah. Incredibly, incredibly loud, um, and because obviously everything's close. So, so, uh, so again, a shell, a mortar exploding nearby is is just much tinier, much much yeah, kind of yeah. hurting on the eardrums. It would also the whole place would just stink awful because there'd be lots and lots of yeah. dead. No one's going to go yeah. and rescue the dead because it's dangerous to do so because yeah. there's snipers all over the place and you don't know where you are. And, and, and mortar's more effective because of the shards of brick and yeah. stone and all the rest yeah. of it. And no one's rescuing the wounded either. So there's going to be people screaming and crying and moaning all over the place because yep. it's too dangerous to rescue the wounded. And, yep. and both sides have possibly a different attitude to the wounded that, say, the Western armies do. I mean, I'm not saying that they don't rescue their wounded, but it's not... A, it's impossible, and B, it's not as... Not quite the yeah. priority, perhaps. I mean, well, so, so rotting bodies in in kind of yeah. thirty five degrees heat. Yeah, Dante Long. Add that to the acrid stench of cordite. Add that yeah. to smoke and dust and yeah. and just, just grime and, and yeah. filth and excrement yeah. and yeah. and and all the rest of it. You can you can imagine it's it's just. Your standards of living just plummet so quickly. Yeah. And, and, and what everything that seemed normal in life, everything that seems half decent, is just just smashed to smithereens. Right. Well, which leads me immediately. And I'll tell you what, we'll take a quick break and I've got a question. We'll see you in a tick. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. 
I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Weird Ways to Make You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. We've just described the, the state of the city, the, the, you know, the screams of the wounded, the stench, the acrid yep. stench of cordite, the dust, the filth, the, the, the noise of uh, guns firing and shells exploding. And it's and never thing, dark either. Never dark. Never, never dark. Now, the, uh, fires everywhere. The thing we've talked about an awful lot in this podcast of late is morale in Western armies. How do you motivate people in these yep. ghastly circumstances? Which leads, that was my very next thought. How on earth are people being mobilised to fight in these circumstances? And one of the answers what, in, to that, in the Red Army? Yeah, yeah. And one of the answers to that is the 10th NKVD Division. Now, <laughs> uh, now obviously, one of the things that's mobilising, you know, is the Nazis are on Soviet soil, Everyone knows we're well past the part part of the war where Soviet citizens have been going, oh, right, okay, does this mean we're no longer part of the USSR? Maybe that's not such a bad thing. We're well, we're well past that. The Germans, by, by late 1942, have, pro- have probably disavowed people of the idea that they're liberating anybody. And also they're in Russia. Uh, yeah, and it, and we're in, and you're in Russia, right? You're no longer exactly. in Ukraine or, those or Belarus. Are, or... Exactly, those things are all tangled up together. You know that the, there are no Russian nationalists going yippee. You know the the Germans have arrived to rescue us, like there were in like they're bringing down the Tsar. There's none of that. Yeah, well, exactly, and, the, and the, you know Ukrainian nationalists that the Nazis had courted and then ditched immediately as soon as they turned up. But but basically, yep. the things that are mobilising people in the Soviet Union. I mean, lots of lots of patriotism, mother Russia, and all that. Yeah, and a reactivation of the church as well. This sort of that sort of loosened, isn't it? Yes, yes, all that. But. You know, I think the thing people's eyes drawn to very often is the is the is the NKVD yeah. and these blocking detachments. Yes, well, it's the tenth NKVD division. Yeah, and and they basically their job is to make sure that no one goes backwards. Well, they're also fighting men as well. Yeah. So so the blocking detachments are absolutely that. But equally, the 62nd Army also... I mean, this is where it gets slightly confusing because the 62nd Army also has blocking detachments. It's not just the 10th NKVD. But the 10th NKVD, they've come from Siberia and they're commanded by a chap called Colonel Alexander Saryev. Yeah. And they're just tough bastards. They just... they, You know, <laughs> they just are. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. I, I mean, so... so on the 23rd of, uh, of September, so, so, so um, Lavrenti Beria, you know, he's the absolutely notorious NKVD guy. Yeah, the guy played by, by Russell Beale, Simon Russell Beale in, in The Death of Stalin. He gets it coming in the end. Unbelievably, despicably bad. But anyway, he's down here at this point, doing his rounds, checking on the lay of the land. He's actually been into the Caucasus to see what's what, see what's needs staring up, you know, see the lay of the land, report back to Stalin and all that On the 23rd of September, um, who reports to the GKO, which is the the, the, the cabinet, effectively, Stalin, um, that the 13th Guards Rifle Division is now down to 500 active bayonets, that the 10th NKVD Division was down to 60. But he also reports that the 13th Guards have begun to retreat. And he says, blocking detachment, 62nd Army shot Lieutenant 
Mirola Yubov for panicking, in inverted commas. He also reports that in the previous 24 hours, blocking detachments had caught 659 men falling back and had shot seven for cowardice. And a further 23 were then arrested. One spy, three betrayers of the motherland, eight cowards, eight enemies of the people. I'm not quite sure what, what, the, what the distinction are. is, but, you know, yeah. be that as it may. I mean, out of those, would you rather be a betrayer of the motherland, a coward, or an enemy of the people? I think I'm, I'm going coward. I, think. <laughs> I certainly don't want to betray the motherland, and no, I certainly don't, don't want to be an enemy of the people. Exactly, exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> but it is amazing. I mean, but so, so I mean, the statistics are absolutely extraordinary. So, by the twelfth yeah. of November, the tenth NKVD is awarded the Order of Lenin for heroism. Well, great, and their achievements in this period since they've been at the front. So, you know, little over two months. Yeah, include the arresting and processing of sixty-three thousand five hundred and forty-seven people. They also reckon they've killed fifteen thousand Germans. Well, I suppose that's you know from their yeah. point of view that's a big tick. Destroyed yeah. hundred tanks, two aircraft, and, and at a cost of one thousand two hundred twenty-seven people killed and two thousand seven hundred fifty-six wounded. Well, all I'm going to say then is tenth NKVD are incredibly efficient if they can. <laughs> yeah, but sixty-three thousand people. Sixty-three. They pro- arrest and process sixty-three thousand people while also killing fifteen thousand Germans. I mean, these you know what? And, and all this is happening. All this is happening. I should say. Well, the peak of the the peak of the city fighting yeah, yeah the peak of the city fighting so so what what is going on here so so i think that the absolute yeah. worst of it in terms of you know germans closing in is yeah. is, is those weeks those first three weeks in september so so, so this is this is the era of pavlov's house you know yeah, we yeah, talked yeah. to ian mcgregor about this you know this is where the group of russians from the 42nd regiment occupy a house and then turn it into a fortress it's quite big the pavlov's house it's a great big sort of brick building big solid kind of sort of warehousey kind of look it looks yeah. like a sort of new New York loft apartment. That's what it looks yeah. like. Yes, and, in, the meat, and, in the meat packing district is what in the meat thinking. packing district exactly. <laughs> and they hold out for fifty nine days in this place, and it's really close to the central station. So the central station, this is the one that's constantly changing hands yeah. every two seconds. Yeah, uh, but they don't really get much. And there's a gap of I don't know, maybe five hundred yards, something like that, to maybe yeah. a bit more to, to the River Volga, and. Pavlov's house is in that bit, and that just doesn't that that doesn't. And it's really interesting that when Paulus is eventually um, when his headquarters is overrun, they find a map on it, mm. and they see that Pavlov's house is circled in red by Paulus or one of his men, yeah. and it's called Castle. Yeah. yeah. So that's also you know I think that's. Yeah, but yeah. that's where that whole legend comes up, and 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 as, as Ian McGregor has pointed out, yeah. that Pavlov was was a lot of other people, and it wasn't just him, and you know, yeah. but, but it turned but into if, one of the myths. Ian's book, The Lighthouse of Stalingrad, is a very very good new history, a fascinating new history of 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 the battle, and the reason we've heard of Pav of Pavlov is because he's a Communist Party member, and and he basically sort of he gets turned into. Uh, a uh, sort know, of hero, a, a hero in the way that in the way that the, the the Soviet Union did things. You know that that's why the emphasis has ended up on him via Call of Duty, of course. So, but what's going on in that building is there's lot. I mean, it, it, you know what? It's not unlike the school. Um, and and uh, regular listeners will be delighted. I'm going to do this. There's the there's the school at the bridge at Arnhem where there's two sets of sappers fighting in that. Uh, building one under Captain Mackay, the, the other under another yes. guy, and they never acknowledge each other's presence in each other's battle diaries. And Mackay's ended up 
in all the accounts and the other blokes are sort of footnote. And it's the it's, they're rival formations. They're from the same regiment, but they're rival outfits and they and they never mention one another because because that's what people are like. And and that's <laughs> that's partly what's going on in Pavlov's house. There's lots and yep. lots of people in there fighting, lots of different groups of people. But Pavlov, I mean in, in a way, he's become the Pavlovian response to mentions of the city fighting, hasn't he? Um, yeah, uh, very good. Uh, I like that. Yeah. Well, you know, we, there's lots of irony kicking around in the Stalingrad yeah. battle, and there's there's another bit. It's worth going through the just a, yeah, the yeah, because the Germans apply the thumbscrews and 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 really do make great progress within the city, don't they? They absolutely do. So by the 27th, on 27th of September, 80 Panzers are moving against the Red October factory. Um, 193rd Rifle Division ferried across the Volga overnight, you know, shore yeah. it up quickly. You know, Chukos ordered them in. Come on, you know, you've got to, got to hold on to this place. Yeah. They're also, Red Army's also still trying to attack from the north into the German wedge around Rhinoch, where actually the, the wedge is quite substantial. There's a, there's quite a long stretch of, yeah. uh, on the, uh, uh, on the Volga to the north of the city. By the 5th of October, bombardment of 300 guns and 500 regiments of Katyusha rocket firing, rockets, you know, yeah. rockets, absolutely hammers the Germans as they're forming up to take the tractor factory and barricades gun factory. So that puts that off, completely rocks it. Eventually, on the 16th of October, the um, Germans finally take the tractor factory. But the Red Army managed to hold on to the barricades until the 23rd of October. So so it's just this sort of absolutely brutal street fighting. And there's a good good description of, a, of by Herbert Pabst, who's yeah. a Stuka pilot, flying over and he says we plowed over the blazing fields of Stalingrad battlefield all day long it is incomprehensible to me how people can continue to live in that hell but the Russians are firmly established in the wreckage in ravines in cellars and in a chaos of twisted steel skeletons of the factories now Jim why don't the Germans just invest Stalingrad and go round it why don't they do what they've done everywhere else in the eastern theatre why not Hold it, you know, hold the line on on the edge of the city and do a river crossing 10 miles to the north or 10 miles to the south or something. Why aren't they doing that? You know, one of the things we've they? talked about with the, with the war on the Eastern Front is every 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 victory has actually cost them. These aren't bloodless victories. They co- it's cost them men, materiel. What's the point? Well, I think it's because because what happens is is your objective is Stalingrad. Get Stalingrad quickly. Don't remember in, in you know when Paulus gets to the dawn, they say on the bend, they go right, go on straight on that day, and he yeah. just can't because yeah. you know that, then that's in July. That's like twenty yeah, third yeah, yeah, of July. Yeah. He's on the bend, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And and then so suddenly you, you're told to attack, and it's a bit tougher than you think. But you think okay, well you know, bit of resistance yeah. to start off with. You know, another couple yeah. of days we'll be there. Then you know, within a few days, you're, you're you're right at the central station. You're only you're inches from from the Volga, so you've got it all in hand. And then another yeah. week, and you think, wow, you know, we've invested this much, can't sort of pull out. We're here now. We're fixed. We're it's fixed. A sunk cost battle. Yeah. Basically. So you're exactly that. So you're 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 heading in, and, and you you've committed, and and you've you kick the door ajar, and then you kicked it wide open, and you you can't shut it again. That's the yeah. problem. You you've you've committed to this course of action, and you've already invested so much. So the only way you can stop it is by pulling out. So you, you've made a call. that My my way of, of attacking and destroying Stalingrad is going to be really quickly. I'm just going to go straight to the Volga, capture the whole thing. Boom. And when that doesn't happen, you suddenly go, uh-uh, we're stuck here a little bit. And that's what happens. There's no question that they go in there with a, with a, a certain degree of complacency because, you know... 60, 62nd Army hasn't done particularly well out in, you know, to the west of Stalingrad. It's been pushed back pretty easily. Yeah, this is going to be a cinch. But the, but the German army hasn't done any major street uh, uh, urban fighting up to this point at all, has it? 
No, uh, but but it is absolutely because it's called Stalingrad and because of what it is and because yeah, of, well, yeah, yeah. Because, well, you know, this is the component that again has to that sort of has this to is be a sort of political weighed in it moral component that comes into it, which is yeah. which which isn't there in Smolensk or um, yeah, or exactly, Bologna, which we were talking about. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and and I think this is it's really interesting because it's a sort of convergence of what well, the battle is a convergence of of, of essentially. You know, the, the characteristic problems in Nazi Germany, the things that yes. defined its ambitions and its methods and its culture are all the things that are leading to its defeat here, that are drawing, magnetically drawing it or gravitationally sucking it into failure, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the other question is, is you know, what we did mention, the difference is, you know, why, why Zukov's not putting all those foot soldiers across, because... More doesn't necessarily mean you're improving your situation militarily. We do need to do where you need to put your men is in artillery. Yeah, which is exactly what he does. And mortars and, and artillery on the eastern bank of the Volga, which is exactly what he does. Now, now why don't the Luftwaffe do more on that? Now, so, so you know, in September they've got three thousand three hundred aircraft that the Germans can call on for this operation. You know, all the all the Luftwaffe is whipped away from the Caucasus operations onto this. So they're all massed onto it. Large share, you know, you're talking about Finns and the Romanians as well. The Romanians have got, don't forget, they've got a handful of Heinkel 112s, one of my favorite, yeah. favorite yeah, yeah. um, non German aircrafts. Uh, and, but obviously, the large share is, is clearly the Luftwaffe. Yeah. And this is what I, this is what we, we touched on this the other day, didn't we, in the last, last episode? But the Luftwaffe are so good in 1939 and so good in 1940, but they're losing their way. They've been overstretched, overused, they've got complacent. The leadership from Goering is not good. They're hung up on Experton and all this kind of stuff. And they're not linking arms properly with the ground forces. Yeah. You know, you know what the Russians are doing, what the, what the Desert Air Force is doing in North Africa in 1942. They're overtaking the Germans in terms of how you operate close air support and tactical support. And, and aircraft production and training can't keep up with all that. No, all that stuff. But, but it's really, in this instance, they've got plenty of aircraft. The problems are that the Luftwaffe... And the army are separate beasts, and they're not talking to each other enough. There's no joint headquarters. There's there's nothing like that, and and, and it's they're just not thinking properly. What they should be doing is flying over the Volga, not hammering Stalingrad, but hammering those gun positions to the to the east, and they don't. In effect, doing counter battery fire, and they're not doing that. So, 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 even in September, by the end of September, the Red Army has three hundred guns on the east side of the Volga, which is not, you know, it's not compared to kind of what they got later. It's not that many. Fifty heavies, but by mid October, they've got more of the two hundred three millimeter and two hundred eighty millimeters. So, these bigger guns, which are just hammering them, and more Katyushas. Yeah, yeah. Well, because the Germans lest we forget, are also at this exact point figuring out what on earth to do in North Africa. You know, the Soviets have got one, there's one game in town for the Soviets right now, isn't there? One battle where they know they can, where they know they can really mess the Germans up. And that's, so they're concentrating on it. They're able to concentrate their force. And again, the Germans who used concentration of force to such effect have forgotten that in this instance. And again, it's the magnetic draw the gravitational pull of the the problems within the within the Nazi way of doing things. Yep. The, the, yeah. Anyway, we're running a little long here, so we need we need to we need to say that 
Zhukov is about to hatch a plan. He is. But before we do that, we're just going to very, very tw- quickly talk about yeah, yeah. women at Stonegram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah just right. But, 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 but just, the, the plan we'll, is amazing. But, but the we'll, plan we'll, is absolutely amazing. And and given where you were in March, where the Soviets can't, can't win a battle for toffees, and over the summer where things have gone badly, where Stalin isn't taking advice, where you end up is, is entirely remarkable. And that, absolutely the Germans, and that the Germans have gone the other way, this year, 1942, is like turning over an egg timer and the sand yeah. runs out of the German end into the, into the Soviet yeah. end. So, so, so the absolute, the, the, the tipping point is November 1942. So aggressive attacks, it's all a Red Army on the back foot in September, just about holding on but losing ground, you know, incrementally but still losing ground in October. In November, everything's starting to change. And one of the things that's really changed, and this is the last point I'll just make about air power, yeah. is that by this point, by mid, in, on the Stalingrad front, on this, on this bit, of the battlefield, the Red Army now has more aircraft than Luftwaffe and Axis forces. So they've got about 1,400 to 1,200. And they've got increasing number of Sturmoviks, these Il-2, Ilyushin-2 Sturmoviks, which are these sort of, you know, these flying tanks, these ground, these really tough armoured ground attack aircraft, which are perfect for this. There's also a huge amount of, um, uh, and this is, uh, I think, the last bit we should, we should do on this episode, is obviously Stalingrad is famous for, for, for the women fighters yeah. in the Red Army, and they, they yeah. absolutely were there. Yeah. And uh, as Chukov says, he says, says, women soldiers proved themselves to be just as heroic in the days of fighting as men. And they're absolutely there. And even Yeremenko says there was hardly any military specialism which our brave women did not handle just as well as their brothers, husbands, and fathers. And we reckon there's, well, about 20,000, 60,000 women directly involved in the fighting at, at Stalingrad. A lot of them are, are what are known as the PVO Air Defense Corps and also the VNOS um, posts, which is a sort of, aero, you know, it's like the, the British Observer Corps. Yeah. We have they're using five the, women in these little sections. They're anti-aircraft batteries and an anti-tank role as well. So they're lowering their guns and turning them on the on the German ground forces too. Yep. So they're doing. They are doing really, really good work. And of course, there's also lots and lots of snipers and, and some very, very famous snipers. And 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 a Red Army sniper would get um a, you know a, a major gallantry medal when they've amassed forty kills. And and, and women have absolutely been operating as snipers. And. One of the question marks that's come over this is, is people sort of go, yeah, but you know, um, really were the women, were the women snipers at, at, at Stalingrad because the Central Women's School for Sniper Training hadn't been established till May 1943. And, you know, we sure really is it just a myth? No, they absolutely were. Um, and, and, you know, what you need to be a sniper is obviously you need, you need to be very, very steady breathing. You need good eyesight and all the rest of it. But what you really need to be able to do is move into position. And obviously, the smaller and more agile you are, the easier that is. The better you are at that, yeah. Which yeah, is yeah. why women are so good at it, because traditionally they're kind of obviously smaller physically than, than, than men. So Tanya Chernova is the most famous Stalingrad sniper. And she had fought with the partisans in Belarus and Ukraine and finally reached Stalingrad on the 24th of September, September when she's still only 20 years old. And she's attached to the 284th Siberian Division. And in three months, she takes out 80 Germans. And the other big one is 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 Vasily Zaishtev, who yeah. definitely existed. Um, but the duel he had with Major Erwin Koenig is just absolute nonsense. He, he's supposed to be this Olympic marksman, but but yeah, he just didn't exist. I mean, it's just totally nonsense. It's balls. But yeah, but these guys are sort of massing huge, huge, huge kills. And actually, um, um, a sniper school is set up in late September in the Lazur Chemical Park. One of these, you know, it's just just sort of between the Mamiev Kurgan and the Red October factory, so just to the north. But the Red Army is stuck, but more importantly, the German Army 
is stopped. Is fixed. Is fixed, fixed. on Stalingrad. It's committed this whole army there. It, it, it's, in a, it's got itself into a real old pickle. And there's the opportunity. And the weather is turning. We will join you for... More Stalingrad fun. More Stalingrad uh, stuff. And with any luck, the rate we're going, we may, we may even finish the battle. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you never know. Could happen. Um, uh, thanks, for everyone, everyone, for listening. We'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. Cheerio. Cheerio.